you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. a scene from a movie. I am sitting in a coffee shop with a friend and uh, Taylor Swift is playing in the background. That's not a joke, legitimately. And it's like her heartbreak ballads, you know, like folklore or whatever. It's the stuff that brings the tears forward. And uh, I, I couldn't have asked Starbucks to pick a better song for what's happening in the moment, but I'm sitting there across from a friend and they're broken. Their life had become a mess, and there they sat, broken, disillusioned, and frustrated. And they began to, through tears, utter the words that would forever haunt my heart. They were this, I wish somebody would have told me. They, like some of you, grew up with a background in the church. They went to youth group, they occasionally read the Bible, they prayed, but nothing in their church experience prepared them for living in the modern world. They were chewed up and spit out by the vision of human sexuality given to them by our culture. With no guide to help them navigate the complexity of their sexuality, they wandered into dark places. And the longing of their heart in that moment was that somebody would have told them where that road ultimately led. Like my friend, some of you may come in today hurting, feeling frustrated, because as we've been unraveling the secular story around sexuality and exploring the biblical sexual ethic, you may have wondered to yourself, why didn't anyone tell me this or tell me this a whole lot sooner? If you feel that way, you're not alone. The church, in large part, has failed to disciple our people to think through our sexuality in a healthy and integrated manner. The church has abdicated her responsibility to train people in their sexuality, and as a result, it's led them to be surrendered to the pull of cultural tide, leading many to shame, guilt, and confusion. What we are experiencing right now is a failure of discipleship. Philip Yancey says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside of the church, people think of God as the greatest spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them. And they follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church and disgust over its hypocrisy around sex, especially 
when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. That is an honest and painful description of where we find ourselves in the cultural moment, particularly in our conversation around sexuality. And so, pastorally, I feel this tension. It was a huge reason in doing this sermon series was because I, I, I acknowledged and realized this is something our community deeply needs, is for us to step into this space and provide a helpful way of thinking through these incredibly complex and difficult issues. Now, I've said this before, but in case you don't know, I am a Christian pastor, right? You didn't come to a TED Talk, and there's not a movie going to be playing, right? You're at church. Sorry if you didn't know. Now you know. And a part of that means that I am unapologetically going to teach the way of Jesus. As you can tell from our teaching text, we're not talking about, like, really light, easy topics. Jesus cuts straight to the heart. And so as we engage in this conversation, I want to remind you of my heart for you. I love you. Now, um, this was not a sermon series that I was, like, skipping in my house ready to preach, right? This was born out of a, a lot of painful conversations with people I love dearly. And really, one of my jobs here as a pastor and an elder at Zion is to care for your souls. And so sometimes that means we sit together at the coffee shop and we cry together. Sometimes that means I get to show up to your kid's birthday party and we celebrate through the roof. Other times it means we have hard conversations. And so I want to be honest, this conversation will be tough. With that, disclaimer, parents, I don't see any young kids in here, but we're going to be having real and honest conversations about what life is like living in our cultural moment. And so right now, this is the point of no return. This is like the part of the roller coaster where they're about to belt you in, right? And so if you want to leave, now's the time, because once the latch comes down, there ain't no leaving. So this is your warning. But we're going to be having um, some real honest conversations about what it's like to, to live in the world that we live in now, obviously respecting the position and the platform and the pulpit and, and the nature that we're in, but unapologetically navigating through these waters because you're navigating them already. And it's my job as a pastor to help you do that. And so um, there's all the disclaimers. In addition, I just want to apologize for the way that the church has abdicated her responsibility. I realize that there are people sitting in these seats right now with so much pain and loss and grief around their sexuality. And the church just said, when you were growing up, don't get pregnant, don't have sex, wait till you're married. And that was the extent of your discipleship around your sexuality. And so when you turned 16 and all of a sudden the opposite sex started to not look gross and bad, you know what I'm saying? That was the only framework that you had was don't get pregnant, don't have sex. And that is a terrible framework for our sexuality. And so I want to step into these spaces with a thoughtful, nuanced response um, and also just preference you and that Jesus' teachings are hard. And if anybody told you they were easy, they weren't talking about Jesus and his teachings. They're meant to confront us, to reveal things to us, and honestly, to tell us the truth. Now, historically, I would say there's been two responses to sexual desire. There has been repressing sexual desire, and there's been releasing sexual desire. 
And I want to first talk about repressing sexual desire. We realize that sexual desire is a powerful thing. And that has caused many to respond in fear towards our sexual desire. And the goal is to repress, to push it way, way down deep, tuck it underneath the rug, and hope that someday, somewhere along the road, this gets resolved, right? And this has typically been the response of the church around our sexual desire. This framework begins in the early church against the backdrop of pagan culture in Greek and Roman societies. So I want you to think about what it would be like to be a Corinthian, like we talked last week, where your coworkers, your friends, the barista at the coffee shop, as a part of their regular weekly routine, visited prostitutes. Like, and it wasn't just like they do that in secret. It was like a norm of society that that was like Wednesday night. The equivalent of like you going to a brewery and getting a bite to eat was them going to the temple and sleeping with prostitutes. That was a Wednesday night. And think about living in that world and trying to follow Jesus in that. You can see why it would be easy to have strict and harsh regulations around our sexuality because it's so ingrained and embedded in culture. And so you see the Apostle Paul and the authors of the New Testament trying to give helpful parameters and guidelines for how the community of Jesus is supposed to live this thing out. And you could see, for the cause of simplicity, to draw the line a lot further along the line than where it actually is for sake of keeping things simple and clean and easy to navigate. And so in Philip Yancey's book, Rumors of Another World, he follows this progression of how the church has kind of uh, positioned itself in the posture of repression. So really, we see this jump on the scene most profoundly with a guy by the name of Augustine. And so Augustine steps on the scene. He comes from a pagan background. And so Augustine has a lot of guilt and shame about the way he lived his life before. And so has a lot of tension within himself about how it is that he's supposed to engage in his sexuality in a healthy way. And so um, it, it's a really difficult area for him to navigate. And so he ultimately came to a place where he said, sexuality is only good in so much that it creates children. Outside of that, he's like, you should be really, really afraid of it. Then came Augustine's successor, Jerome. Now, both of these gentlemen have been dead for a long time, so they're not here to, like, defend themselves, but this is kind of a, a synopsis of what they believed. Now, Jerome felt all this frustration of this, like, sexual energy within himself, and he said, I'm going to channel this sexual energy into learning Hebrew. If there's a really good way to channel energy, it's learning another language, right? And so he Rosetta Stone that bad boy, right? He learned Hebrew and actually created the Latin Vulgate translation that was used in the church for thousands of years, right? Incredible work that he did. You can see how much passion he had because he put it into his work. But that didn't remedy the angst that he felt within. And it actually led him to some pretty extreme views, it didn't really um, help him navigate his own sexuality, but instead put hard bounds of legalism on the community that he was a part of. He came to a place where he ranked, in his mind, marriage just above fornication. 
that's like it's it's basically the bottom of the barrel. Like if you have to, like you're not a real believer. You have to get married. You're like barely there. And that was his framework. Um, he went as far as to say that a man who makes love to his wife so passionately is an adulterer, right? So it's got to be like this, I don't know, formal, um, very business-like transaction. Thank you, have a nice day, or something like that. But if it was with passion, adultery, that's kind of the framework that he had. You're laughing and it's ludicrous, but it was. So Philip Yancey continues, and he says this. In the succeeding centuries, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sundays, in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays, Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also the feast days and the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. This escalated until John Boswell, a scholar, estimated that there was only 44 days a year that remained available for marital sex. The married couples in the room squirming in their seats, right? So there's all of these regulations and rules around this, and this is where the church ultimately came to. Now, there's a lot more history we don't have time to go through, but I want to fast forward to where this framework emerged in the 90s in what's called the purity culture movement. So in response to the sexual revolution and all of the fruit that it was bearing, the church kind of came together and said, we need to respond to our students, our young people being sucked up and inundated into the sexual revolution culture. So they created a counterculture of their own, that of the purity culture. You may remember things like books like True Love Waits, the purity ring movement. You remember that everyone had their silver things testifying to the world of their virginity, right? There was uh, the famous book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, that swept through the Christian world at that time. And so the church attempted to provide a counter-narrative, one that emphasized abstinence and purity. Now, both ideas I'm absolutely for, but the way they went about it, I think, was wrong. The primary motivations were that of fear and shame. The The conversation primarily operated in the realms of do's and don'ts. And there was also an element of, like, prosperity theology in this, and that if you wait, sex when you're married is going to be the best sex you've ever had in your life, right? And that left a lot of people disillusioned, filled with shame, filled with guilt. And so the purity movement inadvertently over-sexualized people and reduced their sexuality not to what they give to God, but instead what they withhold from others. And the purity movement also deeply failed and giving people a comprehensive why behind the vision of sexuality. It was, redu- it was reduced to rules and regulations, not teasing out the full portrait of the biblical vision of sex. The other response, historically, has been that of release, right? We talked about this last week in that of the sexual revolution. And so the idea here is sex is just play for adults. Who cares? You're making a way bigger deal out of this than you should. And this framework here is that sex is really amoral. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no morality. Peter Singer of Princeton University says this. Sex raises no moral issues at all. Decisions about sex may involve considerations and honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on. But there is nothing social. There's nothing social about sex in this respect. For the same could be said of decisions about driving a car. 
essentially, what this college professor is saying is that sex is just like driving a car. The only thing that matters is like how you conduct yourself while driving the car is what matters. This is the secular framework around sex. <coughs> and when sex becomes merely about pleasure, the other person's emotions become a burden. Listen to what uh, Melinda Selmy says. If the purpose of sexuality is merely pleasure, sooner or later, the other person, with all of their personality and separate desires, is going to become burdensome. The, idea, the ideal then becomes no names, just sex. The partners use each other to gain a particular pleasure, trying to get as much as possible, but remain totally separated in their own realms of subjective experiences. So, the message that that's being put out there is that sex is inconsequential, it's amoral, have fun, it's just play. Now this is not just the messaging that adults receive, it's also the messaging our children are receiving. In a segment of Sesame Street, yes, Sesame Street, in a show entitled What Kids Want to Know About Sex and Growing Up, that is widely used in sex education, they define sex as this, two adults giving one another pleasure. That's it. They'll talk about family, no talk about love, no talk about uh, relational ties. It is merely about two adults, an act that two adults do to give one another pleasure. Now, before you think, oh, that's TV, that's far away, it's right here at our back door. In 2016, when I was at college at UNM, there was an event entitled Sex Week, which was a, a uh, convention of sorts, a conference of sorts, uh, where professors and other people were brought in into the, the, the school to teach about sexual education. And they led with workshops such as how to be a gentleman and still get laid and how to have a successful threesome. And this sparked a huge reaction among students who felt that the workshop displayed a pattern of objectification and lacked really a responsibility. And so in response, some students created a, another event entitled Real Sex Week. And they had workshops that discussed the human body, how sex affects the brain and, and relationships, and provided resources and connections such as health clinics and pregnancy centers and childcare assistance and counseling, etc. Now, this response was met with great opposition. Some students teamed up with the local Planned Parenthood and organizations who sell sex toys to tear down the promotional posters of the event, denounce the event as homophobic, and demand that the university shut it down when unsuccessful, they stood outside of the event in genitalia costumes and handed out condoms. If you think that the world is just whatever about these ideologies, there's the proof in your pudding. And that's not at NYU or Berkeley, that's at the University of New Mexico, just right up the road. And it didn't happen 40 years ago, 2016 is when it took place. So this ideology is present at every corner of society. I want you to think about the kind of messaging you receive around sex all the time. And the shows that you watch, and the music that you listen to, and the podcasts that you have, all these different things, they are forming and shaping us. It is hard as a parent right now to find any sort of show that is safe to watch with my kids, aside from Bluey on Disney+, Plus, right? Aside from that, we got that show down. Aside from that, it is almost impossible. My wife and I are constantly screening film after film, show after show, because every single thing is inundated with sexual messaging. 
we find ourselves in a sex-obsessed culture. There's no trip to the store, no turning on the TV, no listening to the radio without the presence of sexual messaging. They even use sex to sell cheeseburgers. Yes, they use sex to sell cheeseburgers. There's a very famous ad from a very famous fast food company that had girls in bikinis washing a truck and eating burgers. I don't even see where these things connect, but this is what they do to sell cheeseburgers. And these are on TV. Anyways, there's so much there. But we explored this idea more thoroughly last week, but the general idea is this. If we indulge in our sexual desires with consent, then it ultimately leads to freedom. But we are realizing that that story that we're being told is failing. In the New York Times article entitled, What Does Love Have to Do With It?, a former cosmopolitan columnist writes, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. So we see both repressing and releasing sexual desires is not working. So you ask, is there another way? And I'm so glad that you did, because there is, and that is redirecting our desires. There's a way to walk in the beauty and goodness of our God-given sexuality and to not compromise on the teachings of Jesus. It is the way of faithfulness. It is the way of redirecting our desires into the way of Jesus. And so, before we get into really pragmatic things, I want to do a brief overview of the key ideas around our sexuality, and then we can get really practical. First, our sexuality is about intimacy. Our sexuality is a God-given desire to lead us in love towards others. Remember that our sexuality is not merely limited to having sex, but it's actually a drive in us meant to drive us towards others in love. And the deepest desire at the very bottom of sexuality is this, to be known and to know others. There's a very famous quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton. Um, some people dispute if it was really him. It says this, the man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. And it's this core understanding of that what we actually desire in sexuality is connection to others. And it's a God-given drive in us to lead us towards community that will sometimes be expressed in marriage and having sex, but that desire is not limited to that reality. Philip Yancey again says yes. The very word sex comes from the Latin verb meaning to cut off or to sever. And sexual impulses, uh, sexual impulses drives us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with the parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with a God who created us. At its core, our sexuality is more than about sex. It is about being known and loved by God and being known and loved by others. Second key idea, your sexuality is about integration. Our sexuality is about the integration of two people at the deepest, level, devil, deepest levels. Remember, sex, the idea of ichad in the Hebrew, is of two becoming one, two people becoming fully integrated at the deepest level. When we reduce it to merely play or pleasure, here's what we do. We dehumanize the other person. Like we talked last week, 
Even science points to the unconscious chemical connections our brains make to people in the act of sex. And so our sexuality leads us to make deep, meaningful bonds with another person. Person, It is about integration. Next, our sexuality is about transformation. Our sexuality is a tool to train us to channel our desires in life-giving ways. We, at any given time, have a flurry of desires within us, right? You probably have the desire to eat fast food and sugary foods all the time. You know what I'm saying? With young kids, this is what my kids want all the time. My youngest, Judah, wakes up, the first word out of his mouth is not good morning, it's not a cry, it's snack. That is the first word out of his mouth. My son is also incredibly unreasonable in the morning. He doesn't want an apple or banana or toast or any of that, and not even Pop-Tart. He wants candy, right? It's like, and there's this fight at 6.45 a.m. reasoning with a two-year-old that he cannot have candy at 6.45 in the morning. Now, if that never changes in my son, and he's 35 years old, and the first thing that he does is goes for a sour punch straws in the morning, he's going to lose his teeth and probably be vastly overweight and have all sorts of other health issues. We realize that all the desires in us aren't always good and don't always lead to a good life, Right? And so part of being human is learning how to channel our desires in the right way. And so it's the same to be said of sexuality, except we treat sexuality different. We say, have whatever you want, do whatever you want. It's your body, who cares? But we don't treat ourselves that way with something as simple as vegetables and sweets. Why is that the case? It's because we are letting our desire drive. Our sexuality is a tool given to us to train us to channel our desires, not for whatever we want, but instead for what is good. Next, our uh, sexuality is about a witness. Our sexuality is a beautiful picture to the world of life in the kingdom of God. When we live into our sexuality as designed by God, here's what it is. It's a breath of fresh air to the world. Because when lived well, it's not about competition, consumerism, any of the other things that the world makes about sexuality. It is about fully integrated people being fully loved, being fully known, and representing that well in the world. <coughs> when the church gets her sexuality right, at first it may seem strange or foreign to the outside world, but as they begin to examine it, they see the beauty, safety, love, and joy that comes from biblical sexuality. Next. Sex is God's design. I talked about this last week, but I want to hit it again. So when we think about sex, it's not something that we like hide under the counter from God. Like, he doesn't know we found this out. It's like he designed it. You know what I'm saying? It's like the way the human anatomy works, we'll leave it at that, right? It's a design, okay? Pieces fit together, all right? He designed it that way. We didn't stumble into that, right? Adam and Eve didn't happenstance into that and be like, shh, we've got to keep this a secret. God designed human beings to procreate in that way. As I said last week, God could have designed us to do that like all sorts of other animals do or even plants do, photosynthesis or whatever, pollination. There could have been all sorts of weird things, right? God chose to give us sex as a gift, as a part of his design. So God's not in heaven like, oh, what are they doing? Look what they found. He's like, yeah, I designed it. Now, the instructions around sex 
Do not begin with a list of like do's, a list of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go there. They begin with a do, a command. And you know what the command is? Be fruitful and multiply. I've talked about this before. It's not limit to, limited to sexual relations, but it's not less than that, if you know what I mean. So what God is saying is when he gives Adam and Eve this gift in covenant of marriage, he's saying be fruitful and multiply, i.e., have lots of sex and have lots of babies. There you go, right? So God's not a prude in heaven tapping his foot, arms crossed. Would you just look at them? He is giving it as a part of his design, okay? He thunk it up, his idea. Second, of sex, God says it is not just good like the rest of creation, like night and day and all the other animals and how the whole world works. He says, and this is the only thing he says of this, it is very good when he creates human in humans, including their sexuality. Before we were ever sinful, we were sexual. And God delights in what he made so much as long as it is used for the purpose and contents for which he made it. Next, sex is a gift. It is a gift God gives to his people, right? God could have made food taste bland like nothing, right? It's just sustenance for our body, whatever. Sex could have been the same way, right? But for humans, it's not that way. It is pleasurable and it is a gift from God as a gift for us to enjoy and worship him because of the gift that he's given to us in that. And I know we get like weird around talking about this or this feels or whatever. It's like this is the place we should be having that conversation since he is the inventor of it and the steward of it and the one who gives purpose or telos to this gift. And so it is a gift for us to enjoy. And lastly, sex is a power. We realize that sex is powerful. That it's not merely a uh, play for adults. The best imagery I've heard of sex, and the Song of Solomon uses this in, in chapter 8, is sex is a fire. Right? Is fire good or bad? Wrong question. The right question is, where is it? Right? Fire in an oven or on a stove making delicious food? We'd all say what? Good. Three of you. Good, right? I'm going to put signs in the back of things for you guys to say. Good. Yes, food is good. You do, this isn't news to you. Sex in the middle of the, oh, sorry, fire in the middle of the bosky? Good or bad? Bad. Sex in the middle of the bosky. We're not going there. All right, moving forward. I lost y'all. Dang it. So, fire. We're back on fire. Fire within the confines of a fireplace. Good. Brings warmth and joy. Roast marshmallows in it. The whole shebang. Okay? So, sex is powerful. And it can either be used for good, marriage, and life, and beauty, and kids, or bad. Just look at the outside world and tell me how it's working. Now, now that we've established that framework, let's get to Jesus' teaching. Jesus says this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, or sorry, causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown to hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better to, use, to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here is most often the framework people have when it comes to sexuality, right? A couple gets together. The first question they want to know is, what can we do? Where is the line, right? 
What are we able to do? Can we hold hands? Can we kiss? Can we be alone together? Whatever the list remains. They want to know where the line is. Why? So they can walk right up to that line, right? And be as close to that line as humanly possible. This is the wrong framework when we think about sexuality. It has primarily been made about do's and don'ts. All the books are about the right way to date and how to date your mate and all that other stuff. Those are the wrong questions to ask. The right question to ask when we're talking about sexuality is not what can I do, but it's this. Who am I becoming by the things that I am doing? And that gets to the heart of the question. It's not simply am I able to do X, Y, or Z. It's how are the things that, uh, what are the things doing to, how are the decisions I'm, I'm making forming me into being like Jesus or to being not like Jesus? And so this question is really about formation. Hence the sermon title, Sexual Formation. Who are we becoming by the decisions that we are making? What is the end goal of a follower of Jesus? The end goal of the follower of Jesus is to look like Jesus. The idea of being his follower, a better translation of that is being his apprentice. So if you were an apprentice barber, the goal would be for you to be able to cut hair at the end of this. Or if you were an apprentice electrician, the goal would be for you to be an electrician at the end of your apprenticeship. The goal of apprenticing Jesus is to be like Jesus. That's the goal. And so when we're talking about formation and we're talking about our sexuality is, does our sexuality help us look more like Jesus? Jonathan Grant says this. The, the Christian vision of life is that we seek to live in a tune with, which, with the rich musical score already playing in heaven. Our greatest priority is to understand what life in the kingdom looks like and how our lives can reenact that form of community and help bring it about. As we seek to image our creator, we give expression to the climax of the church's essential prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We seek then in the small decisions, actions, and sacrifices of our everyday lives to live purposefully with the grain of the universe. And so, Jesus, hear me in this, is not primarily interested in your behavior modification. He's interested in who you are becoming by the things that you are doing. So instead of us being focused on where the line is, let us ask the question better yet, or to try to find what is sin, let us ask the better question of who am I becoming by the thing that I'm doing. Now, the way Jesus does this in his day is by addressing the common teaching of his day. The common teaching in Jesus' day is you shall not commit adultery. It's biblical. It's good. But that's the lowest common denominator. Right? If that's your whole vision for sexuality, that's a low bar. And Jesus is saying, I want to expand on this idea. Because people would have that as that's where the line is and do all sorts of things that they would think that wouldn't violate that line. Specifically, in lusting after other people. We have a similar framework in our modern culture. It's, you know, I'm just looking or whatever it is. I'm not actually going to buy whatever it is. There's some weird innuendos that people use. But it's that idea that I'm just looking. It's not a big deal. We have that similar thing there. And this is what the heart that Jesus is addressing here in this passage. Now, what we need to realize is that our culture has such an influence on us in most ways we don't even know it. Believe it or not, New Mexicans have an accent. Now, you think you talk normal, okay? You go anywhere else in the world or have any of your other friends come from anywhere else in the country, they will tell you you have an accent, right? You don't think you do. It doesn't feel like you do, 
because everybody else talks the way you do. But until you go to another place and you sound like, wee, that's all crazy, then they know where you're from, right? Shut the light or whatever it is. You ask for a Coke at a restaurant, they bring you a Coke and you wanted a Sprite. Whatever it is that is uniquely New Mexican, this is a part of us. You're not aware that this has happened to you. It's just a part of the air you breathe. The same is true for our cultural environment around our sexuality. We are constantly being inundated with messaging that forms us to where sometimes we're not even sure how it does it. Nancy Piercy says this, Secular worldviews do not come neatly labeled so we can easily recognize them. Instead, they mutate into forms we hardly recognize, becoming, hear this, part of the very air we breathe. The most powerful worldviews are the ones we absorb without knowing it. Jonathan Grant says, Our social and cultural context is not something we look at objectively, like a painting. It is more like the atmosphere that we exist within and cannot exist without. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, a fish does not feel wet. Likewise, we swim in the world rather than stand outside, its as, stand outside it as attached, detached observers. We are involved in our surroundings in a complex and holistic way. And our context shapes every aspect of our lives, including how we see our sexuality, our relationships, and ourselves. Much of our views around sexuality aren't taught to you. They're caught in the culture. You didn't have a class where it says, all right, everybody, we're having our sexuality talk today. Point one, your body doesn't mean anything. Do whatever you want with it. Point two, you never had anything like that. But it's subtly in the messaging you're always being inundated with at every corner, at every turn, and it becomes a part of the air we breathe. And so Jesus is addressing the air that his culture is breathing in terms of their views around sexuality and particularly lust. And so Jesus has to do is deconstruct that, expose it for what it is, and press in harder. So the other thing in all of this is you might be saying, okay, you know, I'm on board. It's all right. It's not so bad so far, you know, whatever. But I don't know if I could go as far as this or that. And you already have preconceived things in your mind, right, about issues where you take a stand with where we may be going in the series. And to that, I want to ask you a simple question. Is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord? Right? So often what we want to do is we want to make Jesus in our image. You know? Jesus hates all the people I hate. He likes the people that I like. He's down with the stuff that I want to do, you know, and is like against the things that I don't like very much. He votes the way I vote. He eats the way I eat. He does the thing that I do. That's not Jesus. That's you as God. Jesus' teachings are hard on purpose. There are teachings of Jesus I don't like. Oh, did he say that? He's a pa- yes, there are teachings of Jesus I don't like. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, that doesn't feel good. I'm not like, yes, oh, I just want to love my enemies. It's like, no, I'm like David. Break their teeth, right? Stub their toes, Lord, you know? That's how I feel about it. But Jesus confronts me in that. He says that it's wrong and there's a better way to live. Now, when I talk to our community about, like, forgiveness, No one's out here standing, this is nonsense. How could you teach us about forgiveness? This is ludicrous. I've never been in an environment like this. Everyone's like, yeah, you're probably right. But when we talk about money or when we talk about sex, all of a sudden, Jesus has no authority in your life. Whoa, 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 crossing boundaries here, guy. You're getting a little crazy. Why do you think that is? 
It's because we hold these ideologies so close to the heart. They've become integrated into our identity. And so when I speak to something that you don't like, you feel like I'm directly attacking you because now it's become a part of you. This is what Jesus does. He confronts us. You know what it says about the scriptures? That the scriptures are a double-edged sword. And it's so sharp and it's so specific, it can cut between the bone and the marrow. And that's what the word of God does. And so the question for you is, is Jesus Lord? If he is, then he needs to be Lord over your sexuality. Not just your giving or not just what I do on Sundays or not just the theology I prescribe to, but what you do with your body. Jesus wants to be Lord of that too. And it's not because Jesus is some control freak who wants all this control and power. It's because Jesus came to teach us what it means to be human. And if Jesus really is teaching us about life and life to the full, then we can't just accept his teachings about forgiveness and about loving our enemies and about caring for the poor. We have to also accept his teachings about sexuality and money and the way that those things have pulls in our hearts. And so, is Jesus Lord of your life? Now, remember the question again, who am I becoming by the things that I'm doing? So in Jesus' teaching here, he gets to the heart of the matter. He gets to what's actually going on here. And the first question is, what is lust? I would say lust is when we dehumanize another person by objectifying them with our minds to satisfy our, satisfy our sexuality and our sexual desire. Lust is not just seeing somebody as another human being, but rather an object of sex to give us pleasure. They're not a person with dignity and value and worth. They are simply the sum of their attractiveness and body parts and are for our eyes to enjoy, uh, indulge in. We are using them for whatever our desired purpose is. Now, lust isn't something that's easy to define, but it's something easy to point to. Every single person in this room has had the experience of somebody looking at them in a way that made them feel very uncomfortable. I would say particularly the women in our church have had that feeling. You know that feeling. It makes you feel dehumanized. It makes you feel less than. It makes you feel violated. It makes you feel insecure. That that you're feeling is the other end of lust when somebody looks at you in that way. Now, I get all kinds of people worried. <gasps> what does that mean? When I see somebody just close my eyes and turn away, it's like, don't be a weirdo, okay? Are you going to see attractive people in the world? Yes. God has made attractive people in the world. Are you going to find other people attractive? Yes. It's a part of your biology. So you're like, well, what do I do? You don't fall on the floor and close your eyes in the grocery store. What you do is they're attractive, they're good looking, they're handsome, they're pretty. Cool. Move on, right? Where we go wrong is where you stare for a little while. Oh, look how pretty they are, you know, whatever. And the mental movie starts playing in your mind. Jesus calls that lust. It's so begin you begin to undress them in your mind, or begin to fantasize or imagine or, you know, just gawk for way too long. That is what Jesus calls lust. So don't freak out. You don't have to wear super dark tinted sunglasses when you go in the store and bobbling around. You can just appreciate that there are beautiful people in the world. God made them that way. And guard your heart and guard your eyes, but not to stare long and, and sexualize other people. Now, Jesus is talking about that long gaze that we've just talked about. I love two definitions of Jesus' teaching here. Tim Mackey says this. It's anyone, lust being anyone, who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. 
And then Dallas Willard says this, anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, i.e. using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. And so Jesus says that that act right there is sin. Now, not only does he say that it's sin, but he also says that that sin leads you down a particular road. Jesus says, when you look at a person with lust, you have committed adultery with them in your heart. Is Jesus saying that is the exact same as adultery? No, but he's saying you've jumped on that road. You've begun to go down that path, and that's where that ultimately leads. Both are sin. Both are different sins, but it's where it begins. As a pastor, I've walked through numerous couples going through and wrestling through the painful reality of adultery. Not one of those situations has someone just woke up and been like, you know what I want to do today? I'm going to blow up my life. Nobody has ever done that. Maybe they're out there, but I don't know of any of them. It all has been a series of patterns and decisions that lead them to that place. It's not overnight. It's not a real quick thing. It's a pattern. They begin down a road. And Jesus says, you begin down the road when you do this, when you engage in lust. And so, what is Jesus' instruction for us to do when we realize that there are areas of our life that are causing us to sin? Does Jesus say, just pray about it. You know, best you can do is just hope for the best. No. Does Jesus say, confess it generally in community. Hey, guys, just struggling with anger. You know me. You know, pray for me. Jesus says, amputate it. He says, cut it out of your life. Now, again, some people are like, oh, is Jesus being literal? No. Jesus is not being literal, right? Because if you chop off your arm, guess what? You got another. You pluck out one eye, guess what? You got another. Jesus is saying, cut out the issue at its root. It doesn't say like, oh, we'll just wait a while, see what happens. He's saying, get it out and get it out now. He's saying, because it's better for you to go without and to live than for you to have it and slowly rot from the inside out. Jesus is teaching us to be drastic with your sin. This is a, a framework that's not unfamiliar to the scriptures. It's the idea of guarding your heart. And so uh, the Proverbs say, above all else, guard your heart from everything you do in your life flows from it. So what Jesus is calling us to do is to carefully take inventory of our lives for the things we allow to influence us and shape our whole lives. And when we realize that something in our life leads to a place that does not give Jesus glory and honor, remove it, cut it out, amputate it, get it out of your life. Now, for the really practical stuff. Hang in there. Take a stretch. I hope you're still with me. Now I want to talk about specific struggles we face in our cultural moment and what I believe Jesus calls us to deal with. And we're not pulling any punches. I'll just jump right in. Let's talk about porn. So for the first area of our discipleship, this is something that I think plagues our community and communities all around the world like you would not believe. Here are just the stats. It is assumed right now that most people are watching porn. A Washington Post article released this. Porn is a public health crisis, and the science is beyond dispute. Here are what the stats show. Right now, over 90% of men watch porn regularly. 
right now statistically, over 35% of women watch porn regularly. That number in women jumped up 10% from last year. And it's continuing on that track. So by all numbers, within the next 10 to 15 years, women will be at the same rate of watching porn that men are. So this is not just a guy issue. This is a discipleship issue. Right now, the average age of a boy who watches pornography for the first time is nine years old. Nine years old. The largest demographic of porn users are between the ages of 12 and 17. That is by far the largest demographic of porn users right now. In 2018, the New York Times published an article entitled, What Teenagers Are Learning From Online Porn. And the article talks about a class called Porn Literacy, where for two hours each week for five weeks, sophomores, juniors, and seniors take a class that teaches them how to be more critical consumers of porn in the areas of consent and violence. This class teaches kids in high school how to be more thoughtful consumers of pornography. Porn has become commonplace in our society. Recently, uh, a few years back, Celeste and I wanted to rewatch the Friends series together. We're like, that's a good series. Joey's funny. Let's do it. I was blown away at how many, not only references were made to it, but entire story plots were centered around the characters in that show watching porn. Now, this is not just like, so bandwagon friends or whatever. This is all of the shows that are doing this right now. It's a part of everyday culture. It is an assumption now that people are watching porn. What are its effects? Who are we becoming by doing this? Well, sexuality produces dopamine. It's the part of the reward center of your brain. And so when you see a sexual image, your body gets a rush of dopamine. Feels good, gives you reward. Same thing when you pull out your phone, you get a notification, et cetera, et cetera. Gives you dopamine. But the same image will not release the dopamine again. So if you looked at an explicit image and you looked at it again a week later, you're not going to get the dopamine. So what must you do? You look, must look for more and different images to give your body the sense of hit of dopamine. Porn literally rewires your brain. It is carving neural pathways in your brain. Scientists call this neuroplasticity. It is carving out new waves in your brain. So the way that porn works is if you have to continue seeing more and different, chances are you'll be exposed to violence and pornography. Neurologists say, they have a phrase, what fires together, wires together. And what that means is when someone is watching in a sexually explicit video or seeing a picture and it has violence associated with it, now those two things are married. Meaning that in order for them to become sexually aroused in the future, violence must be present. This is why we're seeing the rise of rape culture and all these other things, sexual abuse, the whole thing, because we are literally training kids starting at the age of nine to associate violence and sex together. It is literally rewiring our brains. Not only that, it's also destroying our relationships. So um, in 2002, which is like forever ago now, but in 2002, um, the psychologists who come together and, and work together with married couples said that of all of the divorces that happen, and over 56% of them, one of the people was addicted to pornography. That is, a, that, is, that, is, that is a common thread throughout the divorces, okay? This is alive and well within the church. That was 20 years ago. 
There wasn't even iPhones then. Can you imagine what that stat is today? Studies show that the way a majority of people learn to have sex is not through the awkward sex sex ed clad or the bird and bees talk with mom and dad. It's through watching porn. Women report that they often feel pressure to play out scripts that their partners have learned in porn, and they feel pressured to having sex in uncomfortable positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant or painful acts. So porn is rewiring our brains and destroying our relationship, and I could do a whole sermon on the statistics there. Now with porn comes the conversation about masturbation. Now, are we really talking about this in church? Yes, we're really talking about this in church. Now, I want to be clear. The Bible says nothing about this, okay? So I'm not going to be like, and if we look in Deuteronomy, we see right here, it's not going to be in the scriptures. Now, you might be thinking, like, was it not around then? It was. The Bible just doesn't speak directly into it. The Bible says nothing about it. However, C.S. Lewis does, and we're going to go with our boy C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis says, for me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in proper use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another and turns it back. It brings the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. The harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with the real woman. For the harm is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions, that which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adorned, always the perfect lover. No demand is ever made on his unselfishness, nor mortifications ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prisons we are born in, and masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. This line is haunting. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. So, three key ideas here. First, if our sexuality is God-given to us to lead us in love towards others, then masturbation is the antithesis of that. Uh, Augustine had this phrase, incovatus, and he uses it to define what sin is. He says it's love turned in on itself. And this is what C.S. Lewis describes here. He's saying our sexuality is meant to lead us in love towards others, but this act of masturbation keeps us in the prison of ourselves. And he says, and when doing that, there's no other partner who calls you to more and better. It's always what you want, how you want it, the way that you want it, and so you come to love the prison. And so, first, is that if our sexuality is to lead us in love towards others, then masturbation is the antithesis of that. Second, I don't see a way that masturbation can happen that doesn't include lust. Now, the scriptures don't speak to masturbation, but the scriptures clearly do speak to lust. Now, there have been some in the church that advocate for this act within the confines of marriage if you're thinking about your spouse. I think that's ludicrous, and here's why. Because you're treating your spouse still as an object to meet your personal satisfaction. It's not a gift of love to engage with them in. It is a self-loving act that you're objectifying your spouse to meet your sexual desire in. And I don't see that. that that's, it's possible, I think, to sin against your spouse in the way of lust. 
by using them as an object of your affections rather than an actual person with dignity and value and made the Imago Dei to love. Third, masturbation reinforces the framework that sex is merely about pleasure, not about love or marriage or the bonding of souls. It's all about me. So what are you saying? All I'm saying is this. Who are you becoming by what you're doing? Ask yourself that question. Next is uh, dating and hookup culture. Uh, brief caveat, all of this stuff is coming from John Tyson's incredible work on that. I just want to give credit where credit is due. So first, dating and hookup culture. Does the Bible say anything about dating? Eh, wrong. Why? It didn't exist. Okay? When Jesus walked the earth, it wasn't like there was clubs or Tinder or dating or anything of that nature. It was arranged marriages. For most of human history, it was arranged marriages. There was a brief time where it was about courtship, and then only up to about 100 years ago did dating ever first exist. So 200 years ago was about courtship. 300 years ago, 400 years ago was all about arranged marriages. So we're living in something that's relatively new to the human existence. So if you feel like, oh, I don't know how to navigate that. Well, it hasn't happened for thousands of years, and so we're, we're, we're embarking on something new here. And so we have seen a tectonic shift in dating, I think particularly with the invention of the iPhone. 50 years ago, you would only be able to come in contact with a small subset of people to choose from for what you would partner with for a lifetime. Chances are the place that you grew up, the place you went to school, the place you worked, it was within your circle. Now, we are connected to the entire world in our pockets. You can see how that would change. And so, with the advent of the internet, you can swipe through thousands of people in an hour versus whether you'd meet three people in 10 years. You know what I'm saying? You can see that that would have tectonic shifts. Now, the dating scene has been taken over by what's been called hookup culture. The dating scene for those of my OGs in here, much love, used to work like this. You used to have to have the guts to walk up to a person eye to eye, face to face, and say, will you go on a date with me? And bear the risk of rejection, right? Later in life, it became you sending your friends to go ask the girl for you, right? Or you would go ask the guy for you. And then it became the phone call, hey, is Lisa there? You know, whatever it is, and to ask her out that way, right? As technology has grown, that's went back and back and back. And now, all you have to do is slide in the DMs, right? You're from the protection of behind a screen where you can just say, hey, what up? Send off, right? And not just to one person, but to hundreds. And whoever responds gets my attention. That's the way dating works in the modern world. Now, with this comes apps like Tinder. Now, I want to be really clear here. Celeste and I got together when Instagram was still about posting pictures of your food, okay? So, you know, I've never been on Tinder. I'm not even sure which way you're supposed to swipe, right? But I have a lot of single people that I know, and it's a part of the culture that we live in, so I've done my research. But just so for some sympathy, again, I wasn't a part of that world, so, so I'm sharing that with you. But in all my conversations, Tinder is chewing up and spitting out followers of Jesus left and right. Now... If a guy likes a girl now, he will simply just slide into her DMs or match with her on, I don't even know if match is the word, that sounds pretty ancient, whatever, connect with, I sound 100 years old, connect with another person online, gosh. So, the common framework looks something like this. 
you down to Netflix and chill. Now, for those of you who aren't in this world, Netflix and chill does not mean Netflix and chill, okay? You, if I said, come over to my house, Netflix and chill, you think we're watching a movie, eating some popcorn, hanging out. When this is said in the dating scene, this means you want to come over and hook up. Netflix will be on, but we will not be chilling, okay? <laughs> That's the framework. So this is what dating is like in the modern world now. It could be far more explicit with that. People kind of just cut to the chase usually like, hey, you down to hook up? Where are you at? I could be in your place in 10 minutes. What, you know, whatever. That's the common framework of how dating works now. One Tinder user reports like this. Tinder is like ordering DoorDash, but instead of food, it delivers you people. This is the common framework. Now, in my research and my conversations with people, and single people correct me if I'm wrong, there's three stages of a dating relationship in the modern age. There is hooking up, which used to be known as friends with benefits. There is talking, which means more than friends, but we're not in a committed relationship. And then there's actually dating, which is being boyfriend and girlfriend. 50 years ago, there was just dating and not dating. And now there's these nuanced and added additions to this thing. And here's how the progression of dating works in the modern culture. It starts off with having sex. And if we enjoy that and we want to do that more, we'll actually go on a date and have dinner together. And if we enjoy that and want to do that more, we'll actually work to building a friendship. And after we build a friendship, then maybe after some time we'll become committed. And after committed, we're committed for a long period of time, living together, maybe one day down the road we can get married. That's how people date now. This is not the framework for a follower of Jesus. You should start off with developing a friendship, move towards dating and getting to know one another, then getting married, and then consummating that marriage in having sex. And so, for those of you who have been out of the dating game for some time, right, it's a whole new world. I was speaking with somebody this morning, I literally said, it's the wild, wild west. And I think that's the most accurate depiction of it. And so before you start like tapping your toes and wagging your finger and these dang millennials don't know what, you are not navigating this world and what it is like to be inundated in this dating culture. So for those of you who are not in the dating scene, I call you to immense compassion and wisdom for the upcoming generation because they need it now more than ever. So before you start tapping your toes, well, back in my day, we used to have the guts to go and talk. Before you do all of that, have some grace on the people who are coming up. Now, so what are you saying? I got to delete the app or whatever. Some of you already are. You know, what are you saying? That's the wrong question. All I'm saying is this. Who are you becoming by what you are doing? If you are a follower of Jesus, I just don't see a way for you to be in that world and to make it through. Are you saying it's impossible for me to meet a God-feeling person on Tinder? No, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's extremely unlikely and likely to cost you your soul. So no, all things are possible, right? But it's not probable or likely or I even think good. So just to wrestle with that question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Really easy topics today, guys. Thank you for hanging in there with me. We're going to end on a really easy one, which is living together. Now, before we jump into this one, I realize this is a sensitive area, okay? And if we are honest, a lot of people struggle with this for a variety of reasons. So again, I'm a Christian pastor. It's my job to teach the way of Jesus, and I love you. Those disclaimers out of the way. 
There are a variety of reasons why people choose to live together. First, and this is the one that I'm finding most common, is that people don't have an accurate framework of what marriage is. Now, for some of you, that might be like, whoa, that's flabbergasting. How could you, you know, marriage is as simple as... People are growing up in a generation, byproducts of divorce, byproducts of the technical revolution, and in broken and fragmented homes. For most people, marriage sounds ludicrous. Why on earth would I tie my finances and life to someone forever when I can keep autonomy? That's how most people are being raised up. And so it's the church's job to give paradigms for beautiful visions of marriage. That's first. Second, a lot of couples who choose to live together come out of really broken homes. And think of this as the safest option to not get hurt because they came out of a hostile relationship with their mother and father or a broken home or whatever it is. They say, living together is the way that I can best protect myself from being wounded. What they don't already realize is they're already neck deep in the water. That if someone were to rip that Band-Aid, it would hurt just as much. Thirdly, this is often born out of a good desire. Nobody moves in together because they have, most people don't move in together because they have malicious intent. Often, they love and care about each other. They want to spend more time with each other. So it's born out of a good desire. But it's just a misguided desire. And lastly, uh, with how it's been handled in the past, how people have, have dealt with it before, living together seems like the most coherent option. Now, does the Bible address living together? Again, no, because that wasn't common in Jesus' time for that to take place. However, the Bible does speak to premarital sex. Now, it is assumed that when you are living together, you are having sex. You might say, well, it's completely possible in all the realm of things that that could be done. Sure, it's possible. Again, is it wise? Is it probable? Different questions, right? And so, in the realm of all things possible, sure. You could have separate bedrooms and live on opposite sides of the house and only give each other handshakes. But the reality is that's probably not what's happening, okay? The chances are if you're living together, you're probably having sex. That would be like an alcoholic sitting in a bar only drinking tonics, only drinking like tonic water all night. It's like chances are they're going to eventually go down that path. So... Here's what we know for sure. When two people who are romantically involved take the step to live together, the likelihood of them sleeping together is astronomically high, right? You are putting yourself in the midst of temptation. The Bible is super clear that participating in sex before marriage is not the life God has designed us to live. This would be considered porneia, sexual immorality, as the biblical authors come and say, which the biblical instruction is to flee from run from. In the language of Jesus, chop the arm off, pluck the eye out, is how we're supposed to deal with that. Now, there are very clear outlines for a follower of Jesus to flee from sexual immorality, that there shouldn't even be a, a hint of it. And so, let's just take a pause back from that, and let's just talk about statistics for a moment. Now, these aren't like Christian statistics against living together. This is secular statistics about people who live together. One in five couples who live together end up getting married. One in five. That means you have an 80% chance to not marry the person you move in with. Second, a couple living together drastically increases their rate of divorce. 
drastically increases the rate of divorce. Unmarried couples report significantly less satisfaction in relationships than do married couples who report higher levels of trust and their partner's honesty, fidelity, and spending habits. This is what's been come to be known as the definitely maybe approach. The idea is you try before you buy or we'll wait and see. This is the whole test this thing out before we commit. But here's what you're actually saying. You're saying, I love you but I, lo I don't love you enough to close off all my other options. You're saying, I am committed to you, but not at the level of commitment of marriage. And so you want all the benefits of the marriage without any of the commitment. You want the intimacy, the sex, the presence, the companionship. And what, what a, a framework that this has been given is what's called sexual fraud. Remember last week when we talked about lying with our bodies? It is you are saying with your body, I'm committed to you, I love you, I'm all yours, but what you actually mean is that's not actually true. The back door is still open on this relationship. And I can leave whenever I want. And here's the honest truth. You cannot build genuine intimacy when the back door is always open. You can't. You don't actually ever get to really know a person because if the back door is always open, there's always a show. They're always putting on. You're still dating. They're still trying to win you to themselves. And so there's aspects of their personality, the parts of themselves that you have not seen because intimacy is impossible with the back door open. Now, let's say you find yourself in this position. Well, what are you saying? Are we, no, no. We love you. We're so glad you're here. The most important thing to us at Zion is not what your living situation is or who you've slept with or whatever. The most important thing for us here is how can we help you begin to follow Jesus? And we allow the spirit in Jesus and community to begin to work all these, these complex and nuanced conversations out. But some questions you could ask yourself. One, why are you together? What's the purpose of the relationship? Where is this leading? If there's no purpose, then what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are we even doing this? The next question is, have you talked about marriage? If not, why not? Why is that not on the table? Have you wrestled through that? Have you walked through that? Do you still want to be in the relationship if marriage isn't on the table? Second, if you have, have you developed a timeline? Is it just somewhere in the ethers and the far beyond, one day we'll get married? Or is it something more concrete? Next, I want to say, if you're ready to move towards marriage, we want to help you do that. We offer free premarital classes where we walk along couples and help them prepare for a wedding, for a marriage. Now, if you think that you aren't ready for that relationship and you have a couple of objections, one of them being it's too early, it's too early for us to get married, then I would ask you, then is the best option to still be living together if it's too early for you guys to move down that path? And again, I'm not telling you anything. I'm just asking the questions. And the next one, and this is probably the most common one I hear, is about finances. We're not in the place we want financially. Now, one, pastorally. I totally understand. You want the dress. You want, the guy wants the nice suit and the haircut. You want to get married at the pretty place, not looking like we got married in a shed or whatever. I get all of that, okay? I think those things are important. But I think if finances are keeping you from committing to a person you say that you love, what can finances get you to do to leave it, right? 
Like if finances are what keeping you from being committed to this person, that says a lot about your actual trust and commitment towards this person. If money is the reason, you won't commit to them. I think it says a lot to that. Secondly, I want to put the money where the mouth is and say right now that there's a couple here who wants to get married, but finances is genuinely a struggle. Our church will come around you and provide a place for you to get married, put a ceremony on for you. We'll buy a dress. We'll do the whole thing. And I'm dead serious about that. I would much rather us be able to walk with you through that. And I'm, hey, it's not going to be no Brad Pitt wedding, but it's going to be a wedding. There ain't going to be no Rolls Royce waiting for you out in the front, but I will, we will happily pay for you guys to get married if finances is the only thing that's keeping you from getting married. And we mean that, genuinely. And so if that's, if that's something that's a real obstruction for you, let us remove that from you and say we are happy to help. We are happy to walk alongside you in that same way. Because we really believe that which we preach. And so all I want us to do, guys, is begin to ask the question, who will be coming by what we're doing? I'm done. That's long. Sorry. Thank you for hanging in there. Now it's time for response. So that's a lot. And sorry if you feel like you just drank through a fire hose. You're no longer thirsty. You can barely breathe, but you're no longer thirsty. Um, there's a lot here. And... This talk could have been seven hours of me like nuancing all the, well, what about this and how come this, whatever this. This is not the time or place for that. Half of you already, I lost you. Sorry. Welcome back. Um, but here's what I firmly believe. I believe that right now Jesus wants to bring healing to these areas. But the first step towards healing is Repentance. Repentance sounds like a very church word. I mean, you don't use that, you don't use that to the cash register. Repent, right? You don't use any of that language. But the idea here is to simply change your mind, to change your direction. That if you're going east, instead you go west. If you're going north, instead you go south. It's a changing of direction. And Jesus is calling you to change directions. That your life, your trajectory was going in one way. And Jesus says, if you want the good life, as I have described it to you to be, you must go this way. And he's calling you to repent. Repentance means to come and to acknowledge, I've been going the wrong way. And instead say, Jesus, help me to go the right way. Help me to change my ways. I have a strong sense that in the room right now, there are those who are really in the throngs of wrestling through porn and masturbation. And the Spirit of the Lord is coming to you saying, I want to give you freedom. I want to give you victory over that area of your life. It's time to change directions. Respond to the word of the Lord this morning. Come and receive prayer. Now I want to be clear. When you come up for prayer, we're not going to ask you, so tell us your deepest, darkest secrets and confess all these things. No, we're just saying, how can we pray for you? And you show us how we can walk alongside you in that. I believe that there's deep healing that needs to take place relationally. Maybe it's a past relationship. Maybe it's a current relationship that Jesus needs to heal. Or sex has been involved. And I believe that Jesus wants to heal some areas of brokenness, hurt, and loss. Possibly trauma. I also believe that there are people here who 
need healing from relationships they've seen. There's been a lot of fear or hurt or disappointment from particularly marriages that have been modeled for them and that you long to receive the gift of marriage that God has for you, but you need to see that vision first. And in order to see that vision, your mind needs to be healed of the marriage before. If that's you, we want to pray for you that God would begin to do that healing work. And so right now, would you stand with me? One of the things the enemy is doing right now is he's speaking shame. He's saying, you can't go up there. All these people are going to be looking at you, being like, oh, what did she do? What did he do? That's what the enemy is saying. The enemy is also telling you, you can stay right here. You don't have to move. You can stay right here. And I believe the first step towards experiencing the healing of God is a step in the direction of risk. Nobody cares what you're doing. Everyone's thinking about what you're thinking about them. And so if this is your time to meet with God, don't waste it worrying about what someone else thinks. Come and receive the gift of prayer. Come and receive the gift of healing. This is the safest place in the world. And if you cannot receive healing here, where can you? And so I just sense that there's just already great hesitation, great anxiety, great fear. And right now, Holy Spirit, I want to pray, would you tear down the walls of fear? Would you tear down the walls of shame? Would you tear down the walls of guilt? And let your children, your sons and daughters, come and receive the gift of healing from you today. Ah, yes, Jesus. And now we're going to turn time of worship. And so would we just remind our hearts of the truth of who Jesus is as we worship together as a community? And if any part of you, if any part of you right now feels like the Spirit of God has spoken to you, don't waste this moment. Don't miss God coming to you in this moment because you will regret it. God wants to do something in you today. Respond to Him. It's not to me. It's not to the band playing. It's not to the pad in the background. It's to the Spirit of God who He's placed inside of you, who's beckoning you to come to Himself and receive healing prayer. It's the Spirit who speaks. Respond to Him. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.